but he doesn't come here on time, so just kidding. Anyway, let's be, let's be focused on the Word of God. So let's jump into Nehemiah chapter 5. And uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in verses 1 through 13. And uh, we are continuing through Nehemiah. As you know, Nehemiah was called by God with a great burden because he heard about the, his people back in Jerusalem because the Israelites were still scattered all over the world because of the uh, exile. And uh, Nehemiah had heard that the people at Jerusalem were suffering and that the walls were broken down. And God put a burden on his heart and he prayed and he wept and he fasted. And then he took a step of faith and went before the king and said, will you let me go rebuild these walls? And when we take that step of faith where God guides, God provides, and he provided from the king every single resource that Nehemiah needed to travel that 800 miles back to Jerusalem, not knowing what he was going to see or face when he got there because he had never lived there before. He was born in exile, but he knew the word of God. And he knew the word of God promised that God would regather his people, that God would rebuild the temple, which had already just happened, but sort of even though the temple was built, there were no walls around to fortify it. And so he knew that there was big things happen, happening in the word of God, and he took that step of faith based on the word of God, and he went to rebuild the walls. And he uh, had some success in that in the beginning, and then he started to get some opposition from the people that didn't want the Jews to rule again. I mean, they had their businesses there, they had their rulers in place, and they didn't want any static from these returning Jews. So Sambalot and Tobiah, they started giving him some problems and even threatened his life, even threatened the lives of the builders. And so what ended up happening is, is that Nehemiah said, no, listen, God sent me here. I'm going to take a stand and we are not going to be afraid. Our God will fight our battles for us. And the beautiful thing is God didn't even have to fight the battle. He just confused the plan of the enemy, like he often does with us. He takes our enemies and he doesn't draw us up to battle with them most of the time. What does he do? He confuses their plans. But now in chapter 5, Nehemiah is about to run into an even bigger problem, I believe, than he just faced in chapter 4 with his enemies coming after to kill him. So in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our field and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because of our fields and our vineyards belonging to others. So what's going on here is the the Jews that were back in the land that were were there from 100 years before when Zerubbabel came in and rebuilt the temple and a lot of the Jews came back in to help with that. Well, what they ended up doing is they ended up settling in there. And uh, because of the famine, because of the destruction, they didn't have enough money to live or eat. And so the people that were there, the Jews that were there, started lending them money. 
And, but it was just further putting them in debt because of the usury, the great interest. And so <clears throat> Nehemiah, when he hears this in verse 6, he says, Then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry and these words. I consulted with myself, which means that he contemplated. He didn't have a conversation with himself over in the corner. But he consulted with himself and he contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. Verse eight, I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? So what was ended up happening? Nehemiah and his whole crew are trying to get the Jews out of bondage. And meanwhile, they're teaming up with those same people who have them in bondage. Then they were silent. They couldn't find a word to say. Verse 9, again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. See, Nehemiah was lending them money and lending them grain. There was nothing wrong with that, but he wasn't charging them interest. He was doing it to help them out. In verse 11, please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also the hundredth part of the money of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. Verse 12. And they said, we will give it back and we will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. And this is Nehemiah talking. So I called the priests and I took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Verse 13, I also shook out the front of my garment and said, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. So he invokes a curse on those that do not obey. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. So, <clears throat> what's today going to be about? Well, first of all, I'd like to talk to you about <clears throat> sincerity. Have you ever met someone who was absolutely 100% convinced of the rightness of what they're doing, but you know that what they're doing or even how they're thinking is incorrect? According to Google, sincerity is the quality of being free from pretense, deceit, and hypocrisy. For instance, you can truly be sincere in knowing you're going to fly like an eagle when you jump off of this building. But you'll, what you'll soon discover as you plummet to the ground is that sincerity, or sincerity doesn't necessarily make something true. Sincerity doesn't equal truth. A popular idea in our, in our culture is it makes no difference what you believe just as long as you're sincere. What's the problem with this idea? The problem is, is that it's based off of someone's feelings. Sincerity is based off of a person's feeling. Because they feel they're being genuine, they believe that this equals truth. What's true for you may not be true for me, but it doesn't matter as long as we're both sincere. 
We hear that a lot. Now, philosophically, there's all sorts of problems with this reasoning. For instance, if two different people are sincere about two completely contradictory ideas, they both can't be correct. I mean, they're both sincere, but they both can't be correct. Either both or one of those people are wrong, despite their sincerity. Now, theologically, it gets even worse than philosophically. You see, the problem of sincerity theologically and biblically and in our real world has to do with the condition of man's heart. The Bible tells us the heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? In Proverbs 28, 26, it says, he who trusts in his own heart, in his own feelings for truth is a fool. Now, because of this heart problem, mankind can never trust his own feelings when it comes to right and wrong, to determine truth. You cannot trust your own feelings. Now, we see today in our passage that Nehemiah discovers the ruling Jews who have been living in the land. They're collecting additional interests from their own people who are barely surviving putting them into debt further, causing them to mortgage their fields, their vineyards. We heard the whole thing. So what does God do about it? He stops the work. Not to make the people more sincere in their thinking, but to fix their heart problem first. Now, man's biggest dilemma, man's number one dilemma is his heart, his sinful heart. Or you could say man's number one dilemma is sin. And the great thing about this, and we, thank, we should thank the Lord for this, is that the Lord cares first and foremost about our heart before he cares about the work that we're doing. We've got to make sure you get that. God cares first and foremost about your heart before he cares about the amazing, valuable kingdom work you are doing. God is in no hurry God is in no need of you or I. He's not going, now what am I going to do? No, look at the Israelites. They wandered around the wilderness for 40 years because of a rotten heart that they had. They didn't want to follow the God that just delivered them. They didn't want to follow the God that just gave them grace and delivered them from bondage. So what did God do? He didn't get all nervous and skit down there and say, here's what we got. No, he gives them the law, they disobey, and he makes them wander around until all those who had disobeyed had died, besides two, Caleb and Joshua, and then they let them go into the promised land. <clears throat> so God also says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, God doesn't see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks into the heart. So God right now is looking through you and he's seeing your heart. Now, it's not the big pound of flesh or whatever you have beaten in the middle of your chest that, we've, you know, that we, we consider the heart, but it's the seat of your emotions, your feelings, your will, your attitudes, your intentions. That's what your heart is. So today I want to look at specifically what was wrong with the hearts of these people who were building the wall with Nehemiah. I believe once we get through this, we'll be able to understand our heart better as well. And this is crucial, whether you're a believer 
a new believer, an existing believer, a veteran believer, a mature believer, or a non-believer, this is page one of dealing with God, your heart. Now, he wants us to have a good heart, not so that he could just fix the heart, but so that way you will now be in a position to be used by God in the best possible way according to God's will. And God will go to gracious extremes to get us to understand these things. So what was wrong with the heart of these people? Well, number one, in case you haven't already guessed it, they had a sinful heart. They had a sinful heart. A sinful heart is the top button of the shirt, right? We have, I've used this analogy before. If the top button is off, if I came up here today with this button here, I would look pretty funny to you guys. To me, I may look down and think everything's perfect because I don't see that mistake. The depravity of man's heart is something that must be understood by every Christian and by every non-believer too. If you don't believe in Christ or you haven't committed fully to him, you need to understand this concept of your sinful heart in order to be able to understand the concept of why Jesus died for you and to be the, uh, understand the concept of why you must cling to him on a daily basis and cling to his word. It's because of the sinful heart. We are sinners first before we sin. So we don't sin, and that makes us sinners. No, we are born sinners. It's the curse of Adam. Because Adam disobeyed God, we are all federally under him, under that authority as born, and we're born into this world. We're born in sin under the condemned authority of Adam and this world. And that's the way you'll stay without Christ. That's the way you'll stay. You'll come up with all sorts of schemes and ideas on your own on how your heart isn't as bad as the other person's heart because of the things that you think about people. Some, I'm not saying everything you do is wrong. I'm not saying everything we think is wrong. I'm not saying that you can't do good, even as a non-believer, you can. But what I'm talking about is before God's ultimate holiness, to have a relationship with him, to be used with him, your heart needs to be changed first. And out of the heart flow the issues of life. Mark 7, 21 to 22, from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these come out of our wicked heart that we were born with. And you see, God cannot accept that. He cannot accept it. He will not negotiate it. Isaiah 59, 2, but your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he doesn't hear. That's funny, right? He's hidden his face from you so that he doesn't hear. You see, we see sight being blocked. We see hearing being blocked figuratively. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. 
And what that means is, is that God doesn't abandon you because you've sinned. He doesn't say, oh, forget it. You're sinning and you're gone. I'm abandoning you, all that. No, but the work is going to stop. Until that is changed, the work is going to stop. Sin has no part in the kingdom of God. Why? Because you see, the kingdom of God is twofold. It's here and it's not here. It's what they call, theologically, it's the, it's, the, um, it's the now, but not yet. It's here now, but it's, hot, it's not here yet. In other words, it's here now in power and in rule and in authority. Kingdom of God means God's power bearing down. It's his kingdom. It's his rule. But that rule is going to come into a fullness when Christ returns. And that's going to be a party. That's going to be exciting because sin is going to be dealt with, gone forever. All of our weaknesses, gone forever. Yet, so impactful for that age to come and the ages to come after that. But guess what? In those ages to come, John records in Revelation 21, 22, in the new creation, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So that is a continuity with now. It's not that then God's just going to decide I'm not going to dwell with sin. No, you are his temple now, being built up into the fullness of the temple of God, the body of Christ. And so God wants your heart to be pure. Now, what was wrong with these specific, the context of our, of our people here today, no different than us, they had a heart inclined to sin. They had a heart inclined to commit sin. The first sin they committed was that of usury. And that means overtaxation. If someone needs money for the most basic needs of life, they should be given money for that not loaned at an interest. Of course, loaning money at interest is permitted for things that are not absolute necessities, yet God's people must always use, as a little disclaimer here, great wisdom and self-control when borrowing money. But the sin under the sin of usury was a greedy, covetous heart. This caused them to break God's law by taking advantage of the poor and needy. Oh, how could they do that? Oh, I would never do that. I'm not that bad. That's what we think in our mind. But you see, the human heart, regardless, every single human being here, listening to this, is capable of the most grotesque sins that you could ever think of. And if you don't believe that, you don't know the condition of your heart. They took advantage of the poor. They exploited their crisis. They got gained dishonestly, and they knew the word of God. Exodus twenty two twenty five. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to them. You shall not charge them interest. <clears throat> Do not rob the poor because he's poor or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who robbed them. So he, God does not like this sin of usury. It was also a sin of improperly handling their money. How do you handle your money? 
<clears throat> first of all, you should say, Pat's wrong there. How can he be at the pulpit saying it's my money? And you're right. It's not your money. It's God's money. Do you see that? The money right now, think about what you have in your bank account. Think about what you have in your investments. Think about what you have in your 401k. Think about what you have in your pocket, in your car, the change on the floor. It's all God's. Do you see it that way? These, these people didn't. It was like my money. Nope. It's the improper handling of money happens when we realize, when we believe that it's our money and not God's. God cares about the use of money. You see, Chris read it earlier today. The sin is the love of money. It's a root of all sorts of evil. And he, and he wrote, he said, but those who want to get rich fall in temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men, plunge them into ruin and destruction because of the love of money. Now, don't get me wrong. God isn't saying that, you know, you can't, it's, you can't have money in your bank. Money in and of itself is not evil. It's the love of it. This thing, this want to get rich translated means to, excuse me, to strive for abundance for outward possessions. And we do that. We, we strive for things and we just constantly justify, oh, no, this is something that I really need. This is something that I really need. I really need that. It's really we really want that. See, godliness with contentment is great gain. Being content with what you have, being content with the food, the clothing, and everything that you have. And then if God blesses you with abundance and you put that into his will, then you will probably become even more abundant in your wealth. Who knows? But that love of money, we have to gut check ourselves in that. So, again, the principle here is God working in the heart of these people that are building the wall, that are doing this great work, getting prepared to bring the people back in. And in a few hundred years from now, the Messiah coming through that line. But what does he do? He stops the work and he deals with the heart. And so God will confront you in your sin to convict your heart. How will he do that? Well, he typically, it's always done through the word of God. It may not be chapter and verse and boom and hit you, but your friends or your people or pastors or elders or people that care about you will confront you in your sin, hopefully. will deal with you in your sin. You see, God will deal with that before anything else. Nehemiah held a great assembly and he talked about this folly of redeeming the people from the nations who were sold into slavery only to be sold into slavery to their own people. He confronts their sin and the sin of having the nations mock God. See, this is so important to God on how others look in and what they see. Because people that don't know Jesus Christ, when they see a Christian not necessarily mock God, but when they see a Christian who claims to trust in God, but yet is not controlling their pleasures, not controlling their will, just saying, you know, and then they get caught and they get exposed. The people don't, don't usually they'll come up to you and go, hey, come over here. It's okay. It's all right. Come on. I know how. See, I told you this stuff is wrong. This Christian stuff is going to drive you crazy. Right? But really when they're doing that, they're, they're mocking God. Because you see, 
God is now looked at as this. <laughs> Look at your little God. And really it's us. If you read through the story of David and Bathsheba, when Nathan the prophet came to him, he said, you caused the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. That's why you're getting punished. Yeah, what about the great sin of adultery? Yeah, that's bad. What about the great sin of murder? Yeah, that's bad. Uriah the Hittite was murdered, one of David's 30 strong men, one of the greatest warriors in all of Israel. David took out to cover his sin. God says, you've caused the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Your sin is going to find you out. There's time, though. The grace of God gives us time, time to change. And what did they do when they heard this in verse 8? They responded in silence. You see, typically when somebody is convicted of their sin and they try to get out of it, they'll try to talk their way out of it. But the Bible says the law of God closes every mouth. Romans 3, 19 to 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable. I like the King James, which says guilty, may become guilty before God. See, the law of God, God's moral commandments, when they are faced with us, it silences our mouth. Like the, the way of the master evangelism you have you asking people, hey, did you, ever, you know what the Ten Commandments are? And they say, well, yeah. And they say, well, have you, have you ever lied? And people go, yeah. Well, just a little bit. Well, what does that make you? Uh, somebody that doesn't tell the truth? No. If you lie, you're a liar. If you steal, you're a thief. And the law of God, you take, go right through the commandments. Have you ever looked with lust? Well, yeah. Well, what does that make you, according to Jesus, that an adulterer? You see, we've, we, we, the law of God stops every person in their tracks. No one can say, I'm justified by the law. And this is what happened with these people. Nehemiah gave them the law of stealing. He, he convicted them with this sin through the word of God and through the power of God. And their mouths were shut. And that may happen as well. But you see, you have a choice. We have a choice. <clears throat> we love to talk about the sovereignty of God, but yet throughout the scriptures, and I'm not disagreeing with, with that or trying to play this off of that in any means, but through the scriptures, God continually commands us to turn and continually commands us to do what is right. So we have a choice, he's saying, to, to follow him or to not follow him. And I believe right now in this fellowship, God could be delaying the work of the Holy Spirit, either personally in our lives or as a church or however it's playing out. Because remember, Nehemiah is a, is, a, is a metaphor for all of us. We're out building for the kingdom. We're building the walls. So God's promises can come forth of that resurrection and that new creation. And you know what? God may be delaying our work in order to get our heart right. I don't know. I'm asking you, is that happening? So how do we, do, how do we handle this sinful heart? Well, that comes next. We must repent. And, and so the second point is that they just didn't have a sinful heart. See, a sinful heart is one thing, but then living in that sin is, is an unrepentant heart. Nehemiah demands repentance from the sin that they are doing, not only by stopping it, 
but by commanding them to take action. Verse 11, what does he say? He says, please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also a hundredth part of the money of the grain, because they were charging a 1% interest, that's 12% a year, the new wine and the oil that you were exacting, and they said, okay. He commanded them to give it back. See, what is true repentance? True repentance. Is it just a change of mind? No. See, because every the Bible says, you know what? We know what sin is. When we sin, we are convicted in our heart. And we go, well, I'm in sin. And that's, that 25 cents won't even get you a cup of coffee nowadays, right? That means nothing is what I'm trying to say. It's good that we see that it's sin. If you don't see that it's sin, I would question whether or not where are you with the Lord if you don't see a sin? If you're, if you're in a, a willful sin and you don't see it, then, you, then we, ought, we ought to get you in front of, um, of, of Robin down at, the, at Point Pleasant so he could share the gospel with you. Now, hopefully you'll get, you'll get the gospel here. But you see, it's sin the, that, that has to be, it's not something that we can eliminate. It's something that God does, and then we have to turn away from it. So it's a change of mind that completely agrees with God regarding the sin. And then now we're in business. But still, that's not yet. So we agree with God that it's sin, but that's still not what God wants. He wants us to now make the required change of action. So true repentance is changing teams. It's not just evaluating other teams. It's leaving the team you're on and going to a brand new team. The very first words of Jesus in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, Jesus wasn't just talking about having some sort of personal religious experience here. Because when, when we think about that now, or when we think of repentance, it's like, have this major religious experience. And that's really not what Jesus meant. Josephus, if, if those of you who know, uh, have heard of him, he was a, um, a historian back at the time of Christ. He was actually born a few years after Jesus' crucifixion. And he was part of the revolt uh, when, when Rome um, invaded because of the Jewish revolt in A.D. 66, which lasted to their final fall and demise in A.D. 70. He was sort of trying to stop the Jews from revolting because he knew they were going to be crushed and killed. So he writes down in, in one of his writings here, I believe it's Antiquities, I forgot to note it, it's either Antiquities or War of the Jews, <clears throat> There was a young commander of the Jews that was rallying up all the rebels and they were wanting to rush into revolt against Rome. And he went and confronted this rebel leader and it says that he told him to give up his own agenda and to trust him. This is what Josephus said in his book. Give up your own agenda and trust me. You don't want to do this. You need to change your agenda and trust me. And these words are remarkably familiar to those of you that know the Gospels. 
because it is repent and believe in me. Same words. That's what Josephus told this guy. Repent and believe in me. He didn't even know Jesus, Josephus. So Jesus means a lot more than just changing teams, changing agenda by repent and believe. We know he means a lot more than that. But the first primary context of that whole entire passage in Mark 1.15 is to change your agenda. That's what the hearers would have heard. Change your agenda. True repentance is changing your agenda and believing in Christ's agenda for you. Not switching around our agenda or moving it around, but canceling the sinful attitudes and actions that form the agenda you're currently following. And instead, follow the new agenda according to God's word and commands that Christ will give you when you turn. See, this is the coolest thing because the hardest thing about repentance is like, well, what am I going to do once I turn? How am I going to handle this desire for this life that I'm living, this sin that I like, or whatever the case may be. We say, how am I going to do it once I turn? I, I love what Jesus says. He says, Luke, Luke 22, 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And he did too. But I have prayed for you at, that your faith may not fail. You say, wait a minute. He got sifted like we, I believe he did. But it wasn't about the sin that Peter committed of denying Jesus three times. It was that Jesus prayed that his faith wouldn't fail. And he says to him, and once you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. And Peter, as we know, became a powerhouse, right? After the resurrection, he strengthened his brethren. How did he do that? Power of the Holy Spirit came upon him. You see, when we turn, the spirit is now free to work. It's no more being grieved. It's no more being um, quenched. It's now free. All the clogs are out of the hose and it's flowing. And Jesus does that by giving us his Holy Spirit. Like Zacchaeus in Luke 19, he, he comes down from the tree and he falls and Jesus, after Jesus invited him to his house and he just said, Lord, I... If I've taken it from any man, I'll, he goes, I'm going to give half my goods, uh, my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I will restore him fourfold. This is a great example of what we have to do in, as it relates to the context of whatever we're struggling with is the, in terms of the action. It's a, it's a good, complete change of teams. Zacchaeus is no longer like collecting taxes. He's now paying back. See, Westminster Confession, uh, question number 87. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of obedience. Question number 87, Westminster Confession. Look that up and really meditate on it because if you look it up on the internet, you'll see all the scripture verses that support it. You see, true repentance is a grace from God. It's a grace from God. It says in 2 Timothy 2.24, he says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, able to teach, 
patient when wronged, and gentleness with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Why? Well, maybe perhaps God is going to grant to them repentance. It's a gift from God. But it's also a command too. You see, it's a gift and it's also a command. That's why we have to take drastic steps to turn from our sin. Acts 17.30 Therefore, having overlooked, this is Paul preaching to the Greeks of the Areopagus. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent. This is a command from God. So is God going to say to you, you need to repent, and then when you do, he's not going to help you? That's not the character of God. Your other choice is to be like the psalmist in Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Isn't that how it is? When we have a sin that we know God is dealing with us, it's like my body is wasted away. His hand was heavy upon me day and night. My vitality was drained away as with a fever in the heat of summer. Selah. That means think about that. Pause. But in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah again. How I recommend, I recommend, this is what I do if I get caught up in a, in a behavior pattern that I know is not right, I tell somebody that cares about me that I know is not going to throw it in my face or use it against me. I'm going to go to that Christian brother and I'm going to say, this is what I need. I need accountability. That's what, that's what Nehemiah did. What did he say to the priests? He called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. That's why he shook the front of his garments out. Because he now knew that they were going to be held accountable. And he said, anyone that, that, that doesn't listen to the priests, that doesn't follow through with this, is going to be cut off. He's going to be, God's going to shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Tell someone about it. Confess your sins to one another. Eliminate all triggers to the best of your ability. Don't sit by the lake you were once rescued from. The story goes, a father and a son have a lake in the back of their home. And the father says to the son, you could walk by the lake, but you never want to go swimming in that lake, ever. You tried to do it when you were little, and I gave you a whooping. You remember that? Don't ever go in there. There's crocodiles all over the place. <clears throat> well, what happens is, of course, the son doesn't believe the father. He jumps into the water, and he walks. He goes, there's nothing really wrong with this. So he swims out a little deeper. Before you know it, he's in the middle of the lake. And what pops up? Boom, 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 boom. He's surrounded by crocodiles. He starts to scream. And who comes running into the lake but his father? And he takes him and he rescues him. But in the process, as the story goes, the father gets severely wounded by these alligators, crocodiles. And the son feels great remorse. Do you think that son would ever go near that lake again? If he does, how does he value his father's sacrifice? What if his father died for him? How much more would he stay away? Our father sent Jesus Christ to die for the sins that we are currently committing right now. He sent him to die for the sins of your past. 
He sent him to die for the sins of your future. Just because grace abounds doesn't mean that we should go and dive into sin and say, I'm just going to have grace. My dad's going to save me again. It's no big deal. You see, it's an attitude change that God wants us to have. Seeing your sin should go right along with seeing the sacrifice that Jesus made for your sins. If you have a personal relationship with him, it should grieve you when you sin and pull you back to Christ. And then finally, do the opposite of what you're doing now. These people should have not, they shouldn't have been trying to gain money dishonestly. They should have been tithing their money. They should have been honoring God with their money. So we must do the opposite, in, 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 which is really cool, is in, in Malachi 3, 7 to 12. Now, Malachi was one of the prophets that was prophesying to Jerusalem and during uh, these, this wall building. So Nehemiah and Malachi knew each other. This was during the same time. But it was a little bit after this, uh, the part that we're at right now. And listen to this. It says, from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside. This is Malachi 3, 7 from my statues, and you've not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And then God says, will a man rob God? You are robbing me. How have we robbed you, you say, in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation you're robbing. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. This is what happens when we turn and repent. Think about that. Lord, I want to turn. I want to come to you. But how shall I return? Do the opposite of what you're doing now. But Lord, I'm afraid if I, if I give money here now, I'm never going to be able to make it in my life. Trust me, I'm going to open the windows. I'm going to open the doors and I'm going to fill you with overflowing. And you are going to get 10 times more than you had before. That's what he's saying in this context. But it's also as it relates to repentance, the joy that you will have of complete surrender to Christ will make that little sin that you're in now look like dog food compared to a great steak at Texas Roadhouse on Route 9 in Howell. For those of you that are looking to give any gifts to your pastor. But seriously, though, God blesses, okay? And so God, people, they had a sinful heart, an unrepentant heart, and I'm running out of time here, and they had, until they were confronted, they had a repentant heart, and they also had... A halfway heart, as I like to call it, because you see, they weren't fully, fully committed to God. <clears throat> you either a hundred percent in or you're not in at all. That's the another you know misnomer about interpretations of Christianity that there's a halfway uh, following of Christ. No, Jesus requires full commitment. He hates neutrality. Jesus hates neutrality. He hates the when you stand in the gray area. He says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. This is Matthew 12, 30. And then more, uh, a little bit more harshly, he says in Revelation 3, 15 to 16, to his people, I know your deeds, 
that you were neither cold nor hot. I wish, you th- I wish that you were cold or hot. I-, I wish you were one way or the other, but you're not. You're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. So what am I going to do? I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Very good visual there. So when we realize that full commitment can only happen with a repentant heart, can only happen when we understand the nature of our heart, now we are getting to the place where God can now use us. And like they did here in Nehemiah, not only that God can use, but now we can praise God with a clear conscience. You see, it says here, after all this happened, as they said, the last verse we covered said, amen, and they praised the Lord. They praised the Lord when they did according to the promise. True praise can only come from a pure conscience. And this is what Jesus said. Those who worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. And that only can come from a, a full conscience. So <clears throat> Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed because of the message your pastor just spoke. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He's with you to do this. He's with you to do this. Now, Nehemiah, understandably, he was very angry. He must have been so frustrated. He was called by God. He survived the trip. He got the resources. He survived the mocking and the death threats from his enemies, and the work went on. But now, because the people of God had the wrong heart, they were in sin, the work stopped. Ah, let this be a lesson to us. Let it not happen to us. Let's commit fully to the Lord. It starts with believing the gospel, but it also starts with living the gospel. See, living the gospel is understanding that Jesus died for you, that his blood covers your sins, past, present, and future. But, but the essence of the gospel when you see the whole book of Acts, what is it I'll talk about? It's the resurrection. That's the essence of the gospel. Paul says, without it, our faith is done in vain. So God wants you to walk in the power of the resurrection. He saved you for that. So now you can be used like Nehemiah is being used, like the Jewish people are going to now be used to build those walls. We can now build for that kingdom. So living the gospel is living in light of the resurrection, living, standing in the blood of Christ, knowing it covers your sins, not walking in fear, not just just continuing to walk surrendered to the Lord at the best of your very best capability that you could do right now. That's what God is calling you to do and myself as well. So let's pray for that. Father, we pray for the ability to understand the heart as you understand it in the scriptures, Lord, that we may not trust in our heart, that we may see that that we have a need for a new heart if we don't know you and that we would accept that from Christ right now and we would be saved. And Lord, for those that do know you, God, that they would turn from their sin, knowing that you, God, once we have turned, will strengthen and that will provide the grace needed to move forward. And so, Lord, we ask for that right now. I ask if there is anyone here, Lord, that is struggling, that they would fully commit to you as these words are prayed. Father, save them. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm